All right, well, we are in Luke chapter 7 and planning to take us down to about verse 35. And um, we'll see how that goes. I do have a lot of notes. really didn't plan on it, but it, it just kept getting bigger. And so we'll see how we do. I'm not going to push it. But at chapter 7, verses 1 through 35, we're going to see how Jesus responds to those in need. And that's the title, Jesus Responds to Those in Need. We're going to see the compassion and the encouragement of Jesus to people that found themselves in some really desperate situations. We're going to see the compassion he had um, upon a concerned friend who was worried for the the life and the well-being of his servant who clearly was more than just a servant. We're going to see the compassion he has on a widow who is burying her only son. All the emotion that was there, Jesus felt that. We're also going to see the encouragement he brings to a weary prophet, John the Baptist. So let's begin reading at verses 1 through 10. And we will read about this uh, Gentile soldier that so impressed Jesus. Now when he had concluded all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. So there at uh, um, the Sermon on the Plain, possibly the same as the Sermon on the Mount, he went and entered into Capernaum, a town right there on the Sea of Galilee. And a certain centurion servant, who was dear to him, was sick and ready to die. So when he heard about it, Jesus heard about Jesus, he sent elders of the Jews to him, pleading with him to come and heal his servant. That's an odd little line to read right there. The elders of the Jews are coming to plead on the behalf of a Gentile soldier. It's interesting. Well, we'll get get some more insight. Let's keep going. When they came to Jesus, they begged him earnestly, saying that for the one for whom he should do this was deserving, for he loves our nation and has built us a synagogue. Then Jesus went with them, and when he was already not far from the house, the centurion sent friends to him, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy that you should enter under my roof. Therefore, I did not think it even think myself um, worthy to come to you. But say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I also am a man placed under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him. And turned around and said to the crowd who followed him, all Israelites, presumably, right? I say to you, I've not found such great faith, not even in Israel. And those who were sent, returning to the house, found the servant well who had been sick. So this guy catches Jesus' attention. um, And there's a lot about this guy that is commendable. Uh, It's interesting that in the New Testament, whenever... The centurion is mentioned, it is always, he's always mentioned in a positive light, man of character. Um, that's not to say every centurion in the Roman Empire was a great man of faith. I think that would be a total misread of the New Testament. But in the New Testament, whenever it does mention a centurion, they are put in a positive light. And this man's no different. He had a great reputation. He was beloved of the Jews, a Gentile Roman soldier was beloved of the Jewish leaders. That's amazing. It's amazing. He certainly was a man that stood out. 
And, and we see that not only, um, we, we, well, we can get a little insight into why, because he cares for his servant. He sees a servant that's in need. Now, here's what you have to know. It was, among other thoughts that would have been out there, that would have been leaning more towards compassion and love towards all people, and if they were a servant, you've got to know that a common thought was that a servant, a slave, was just like a tool. It was property. Let me read to you a quote. A Roman writer on estate management recommends the farmer to examine his implements every year and to throw out those which are old and broken and to do the same with his slaves. So that's how they viewed other people. And because they were a slave... Many had the mentality that they were just a tool that could be discarded. So if they got sick, if they got lame, if they got hurt, rather than continuing to put money into it, just turn them out. And they would have no way to care for themselves, and it would almost certainly end in death. But he, this is a guy that rather than turning him out, he wants to see him healed. He wants to see him restored. And he's putting forth effort. He's expending energy for his servant. So the Jews are impressed, but now we're impressed too that he is a man that was going to go against the flow and love all people. But the thing that is most notable about him is what? His faith. It's the faith that Jesus... He doesn't say, wow, this is the most caring man I've ever seen in Israel. I mean, he certainly was caring. He didn't say, wow, this is the most benevolent man I've ever seen in Israel. Built a synagogue, you love our nation. That's not what he said. Those were commendable things, but what catches his attention is his faith. Faith is the most important thing to the Lord. Faith is the one thing that the Lord loves to zero in on. Twice in the scriptures, Jesus is astonished at faith. We're reading about one of them right now. Does anybody remember what the other one was? was in Nazareth. And it wasn't for their great faith. It was for what? Their lack of faith. At his own hometown, he's like, I'm amazed at your lack of faith. But to the centurion servant, he's like, I am blown away by your faith. I haven't seen this in Israel. I wonder if his mind just kind of went back to his own hometown right there. But faith is what is so important to the Lord. Ephesians 2, 8 says, For by grace you've been saved, what? Through faith, and that not of yourself, it is the gift of God. Faith is something that the Lord gives to us, and it's through faith that we appropriate the grace of God and we experience salvation. And so it's faith. Faith is so important that the Lord gives it to us. In Hebrews 11.6 we read, But without faith it is impossible to please him, for he who comes to God must believe that he is, and that he is a rewarder, of those who diligently seek him. So faith is something that the Lord gives for salvation, but faith is also something that when he sees it, it pleases him. And that's so clear right here, right? He's just blown away. He commends this, this centurion. But faith is something that the Lord is looking for in our own hearts. As a matter of fact, didn't Jesus say something like, when the Son of Man's, will he really find what? Faith on the earth. He's looking for faith. 
He's wanting to see people that will walk in faith. And Jesus could do no mighty deed in Nazareth because of the lack of faith. But how many times do we read in Scripture that according to their faith, look up that phrase in Matthew, according to their faith, that the Lord moved and acted on their behalf. It pleases the Lord. Without it, you can't please Him. It's not our good works. It's not any of those things. It is faith that the Lord stands up and takes notice of. Again, he could have said, wow, you are such a benevolent man. Wow, you are such a caring person. Now, these are obviously things that we're also commanded to do in Scripture. But you've got to have faith. And if you don't have faith, all these other things are just deeds that you're doing. And maybe good deeds that people will be benefited from. But with you, the Lord, with me and the Lord, it is faith that is the central thing. Faith is so important that in James 1, 2, and 3, we read, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. God is so interested in your faith that he takes the hardships and the difficulties and the trials of life and he uses them to strengthen your faith, to give you an enduring faith, a faith that will go through trials and hardships and difficulties. Not the kind of faith that springs up, right? You hear the word of the Lord and it, somebody springs up and it's like so excited, but then a trial comes and what happens to that new little sprout? The, the sun hits it, it scorches it, there's no depth of earth, and it, it withers and it dies. Now the Lord wants our faith to be tested and strengthened. The real faith is going to be tested and it's going to be, uh, go through difficulties and the Lord will... He's going to use, utilize that to strengthen it so that you have the endurance. You know, listen, when you begin in your, your faith, the Lord, some people are hit with hard trials right away. But here's what we all can know for sure, that in this life, there's going to be hardships and there's going to be difficulties. And none of us know what hardships and difficulties lay ahead of us. Now, maybe some of you are spending too much time worrying about those, and I don't want to add to your anxiety tonight. However, there's a lot of things that can happen out there. But the Lord is faithful, and He's going to develop you, and He's going to produce in you just the right amount of faith for that moment. The Lord never says, oops, we forgot that one. We forgot to get them ready. We forgot to take them in the gym of you know, trials so that they would be ready and they would have the necessary faith for this thing that they're enduring. No, the Lord is always on time with his training program for us. So what are you going through? I'm not ready for it. Yeah, you are. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you're ready for it because the Lord is faithful. And he is he's going to bring things into your life and take them out at just the right time. Here's what we often say, and I'll say it as, I try not to say it anymore, but I used to say it as like, man, if that ever happened to me, I don't know if I could handle it. I don't say that anymore. What I say now is, if that ever happens to me, I know God's going to be faithful to give me the grace and the strength and the faith I need in that moment. I don't have it right now, but I don't need it right now. But if that ever comes, I, I am confident that he'll give me exactly what I need. That is true for you, that is true for me, and that is true for the church of Jesus Christ around the world. The Lord will give his church what she needs in that moment. And he is at work building into us the endurance. And so when you fall into trials, thank the Lord that he's producing you in you a strong, healthy faith that's not going to be blown away and, 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 and falter. So 
Yeah, he is so concerned about faith that he gives it for salvation, he's pleased by it and rewards those who come to him in faith, and that he develops it within us. So let me ask you the question, how does Jesus feel about your faith, Troy's faith tonight? What, what, what would be the word that the Lord would put on your faith? What do you say? That's, that's amazing faith right there. I haven't seen faith like that anywhere in Lynchburg. Or, or, or would it be like, okay, I see the faith. Um, you're kind of doubting a little bit. Let's, let's, let's be encouraged. Let's trust me. What is it that the Lord is seeing about your faith? Well, how do I know where my faith is? Well, are you trusting him? Are you trusting him to finish your, the work of salvation? Are you, are you trusting him to see you through these difficulties and through the trials that you're going through? How about this? Are you asking him? I mean, trusting is a, um, an outworking of faith. And asking him for the things that we have need of is also an outworking of faith. I don't even pray anymore because the Lord knows. And if he wants to do it, he can do it. But the Lord has said in his word, what? You have not because you ask not. Well, what's the point of asking? You know what? Take it up with him. He's the one that said you should ask and that I should ask. He rewards the faith of those who diligently seek him. And certainly praying is one of those ways. He wants us at his feet, as we sang earlier. He wants us there to hear what he has to say. And the other way to just examine your faith, are you trusting, are you asking? Thirdly, are you obeying? The word of the Lord and the direction of the Spirit of God in your life. And we talked about this, and I want to belabor this point too much because we've talked about it, it seems like, a lot lately. But just briefly, if you are having problems obeying the commandments of the Lord or the leading and the direction of, your, of, of the Lord, it's because you lack faith. You think that what God is asking you to do really will not be the right thing to do. And so you're coming up with your own script and your own plan. And the Lord says, obey me. Humble yourself before that person, whatever it may be. So how would Jesus describe your faith tonight? Now, listen, that's a kind of a gotcha question. I, you know, I, I realize that. It's kind of like, can I ever answer that question in a positive way? I think you can, actually. But, but I understand it's kind of like a gotcha question. It's like, oh, yeah, my faith stinks. You know, listen. The Lord doesn't say it to you that way if your faith needs help, okay? He doesn't say, that's terrible faith. I'm, I'm ashamed. Just call me later. No, he doesn't do that to you. If the Lord is going to come to you and challenge your faith tonight, then know that he comes because he loves you and he wants to develop that faith within you. So I don't want you to walk away discouraged. I want you to walk away just determined to let the Lord build that faith in you. Now, just briefly, before we, we leave um, the, this, this scene, of course, the Lord um, sees the faith as manifested with this guy saying, listen, you don't even have to come to my house. Just, just say the word, and it's good. And, you know, in, in one sense, all of us are like that centurion today when we pray, aren't we? Because Jesus is not going to come to our house in bodily form like he did there um, with this, was about to with this centurion. All of us, in a sense, say, Lord, I know, you know, we believe. You don't have to come. Just, Lord, we call upon you. You're in heaven. You can stay there. 
Because we know that you can answer this prayer from that place because, Lord, you are over all things. And so the Lord sees this and hears this. He says, wow, your faith is amazing. And the man's servant was healed. And um, this is what Jesus commends him for. Now, listen, I just, I'm not going to spend much time on this. You can ask me afterwards if you want to. But when you read Matthew's account, he gives us an abbreviated account of this one here. And some have claimed that the two gospel writers are in conflict with each other and the way they reported the scene. So we've got an error in Scripture. Matthew tells us that the centurion came to him, whereas Luke states he sent in, uh, the elders of the Jews to Jesus. Now, how exactly we took place, we can't say with certainty, but there is some real probable um, answers. Um, one is that the elders just came and they were serving as translators for him. And they're the ones that were speaking for him. Um, maybe the man came and with the humility that we see with him, maybe it's just like, just you guys talk for me. And so they were, you know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a centurion Gentile. I don't want to go to Jesus. I mean, he's, he's He's not going to want to talk to me. Just can we go, but just you, you can. So th there are ways that you can work this out. Um, some would say that this is just simply Matthew abbreviating the story and leaving out some of the uh, details that are inessential uh, to, the, to the point. So just know that it's there. Know that there are ways to reconcile this problem. And um, yeah, if you ever want to read, you're probably going to read more stuff than you ever want to. And you're just like, oh. It's just can get really annoying sometimes with the, the way in which they will spend so much time, commentators, on this one issue and not on these other issues, and they begin to doubt the, the veracity of the Word of God. So um, the, there's no reason to doubt that. There are reasonable explanations. Let me just read to you. He therefore eliminated the role played by the elders as translators between Jesus and the centurion. This is a possible explanation. This should no more disturb the reader than the fact that when... The newspaper speaks of the President of the United States talking with the leaders from Russia or China. It never mentions the translators who were present and seeking to abbreviate the story. Matthew simply ignored these translators. And he goes on. So that, he's putting this out as one of the possibilities. Moving on, we come into the next scene. And that's in verses 11 through 17. It says, Now it happened the day after that he went into a city called Nain, and many of his disciples went with him and a large crowd. So the scene here is when Jesus went somewhere, his disciples came, they were followers. But the crowds were like, man, we are going, we can't wait to hear this guy teach again. We can't wait, wait to see what he's going to do next. And so they, there was people that just followed him, these multitudes. Verse 12, and when he came near the gate of the city, behold, a dead man was being carried out the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. And a large crowd from the city was with her. When the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, Do not weep. Then he came and touched the open coffin, and those who carried him stood still. And he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. So he who was dead sat up and began to speak. <laughs> Yeah, I wonder what he had to say. I wish that would have been recorded. And he presented him to his mother. Then fear came upon all, and they glorified God, saying, A great prophet has risen among us, 
And God has visited his people. And this report about him went through all Judea and all the surrounding regions. So they went to Nain, a, journey, a day's journey from Capernaum. Um, and he comes upon a sad scene. You got a, a, a widow whose only son has now died. You can imagine there had been many prayers and many calling out, you know, hours of calling out to the Lord for his life. I mean, what mother wouldn't do that, right? And, and yet here he is, deceased, and Jesus comes to the scene. It's a sad one, but the timing is perfect. Oh, we say the timing is perfect. Perfect for who? You know, because I think mom, like Mary and Martha, would have said when Lazarus died and Jesus came, if you would have been here earlier, he wouldn't have died. What's that? This is your fault. This is your fault. You're off on your timing. You came too late. And yet, Jesus' timing was perfect with Lazarus as well. And his timing is perfect here. Although, she wouldn't have had a clue that it was what was about to happen. And she had gone through the grieving. She was in the midst of the grieving. She was in the midst of the sorrow. And the Lord shows up and probably just quietly walked up. I mean, he had a large crowd, so a large crowd meets a large crowd, right? And comes up and just tells the young man, hey, get up. He gets up and he starts to talk. I, I, I would imagine, I don't know, but what do you hear the man saying in your mind? This is what I hear him saying. You won't believe it. I mean, that's kind of what I expect that he would have said and then would have gone on to describe what those days of him being deceased in body, not in spirit, were like. And I was in the, you know, the bosom of Abraham. You won't believe what I saw and what I experienced. Who knows what he said, but I bet everybody was listening. And um, so as he spoke, um, fear came upon them. But when Jesus comes in there, he is touched. The, the word we read here is that he had compassion for her, right? He felt something deeply for her. And um, this word for compassion that Jesus has for this woman, it's, it's one of the strongest words. As a matter of fact, one commentator says, there is no stronger word in the Greek language for sympathy than this word right here. This word was the strongest word that Luke could put his hands on to describe how Jesus felt. This wasn't just a kind of a little token pity he was showing. He was deeply moved when he saw this mother and this widow. Now we read here that she, uh, the only son of his mother, and she was a widow. But what is the significance of that? And she was a widow. Well, the significance is she was now all alone. There was nobody that was going to be there. There was no male protector. There was no provider, which was so key in that first century world. There would have been very few opportunities for her to, to have provided for herself. And so she's lost her husband. She's now lost her only son. And the Lord sees this woman. There in verse 13, when the Lord saw her, he had compassion on her and said to her, do not weep. 
So she was a mess. And the Lord sees it, and the Lord feels it. Splachnizomai, that's what the word is. How do you like that one? Splachnizomai. That, that's compassion. He had this feeling. The Lord is compassionate with us as well, isn't he? You know, Jesus, when he did these, and we'll see this in the next scene with um, John the Baptist, what he's doing is prophetic, uh, a fulfillment of prophecy that he would heal uh, the blind, the lame, the sick. He would raise the dead. These are the things that the Messiah is going to do. So on one hand, it's, it's certainly checking a technical box for what the Messiah does, but Jesus doesn't just check the box in a technical way, does he? He does it because a prophecy says he would do these things. But in the midst of showing John the Baptist and everybody else that he really is the one they had been waiting for, he also is able to just pour out compassion upon a single individual. We see that with the centurion and his servant. And we see it now here with this, this woman. She would have been brokenhearted, of course, but fearful would seem to be the idea behind, and she was a widow. It's bad, it's doubly bad news. Well, the, the response of the crowd is that they have awe. They're, you know, fear comes upon them. It took hold of them. Ah, what just happened? And this amazing, wonderful miracle. Um, Raising him from the dead is, is not something that we don't have any claim to. Jesus is healing this one man but, and, and, and showing who he is, but it also speaks of the work of the resurrection he's going to bring to all who put faith in him, right? So we all are going to have a taste and a touch of this experience. 1 Corinthians, um, well, actually, let me back up. I'm going to just... Pin that thought for a second. Let me rewind and go back on this idea of the compassion. I'll come back to the resurrection thought in just a moment. Turn with me over to Philippians chapter 2. Philippians chapter 2. Paul here builds an argument that we should be looking out for one another and putting others' interests in front of our own based upon the fact that Jesus has shown us compassion and mercy and comfort. Now, if Paul's going to build a logical argument on the fact that we have experienced compassion and mercy from the Lord and comfort from the Lord, he must feel pretty confident that what? All of us in faith have experienced the compassion and the mercy and the encouragement of the Lord. If it's not a guarantee that we all have, then he would have chosen another line of argument. He could have said, you know, um, since we all have put faith and trust in the Lord and have been saved through the, his work of, of atonement on the cross, let us look out for the interest of others. And that's a true statement too. But because he says, verse 1, Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ... If any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy. Or maybe we can read this. Therefore, since there is consolation in Christ, and since there's a comfort of love, and since there's a fellowship of the Spirit, 
and since there's affection and mercy. Fulfill my joy by being like-minded, by the same love of being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. So the Lord has compassion on this woman, but so the Lord has had compassion and is having compassion upon all of us. Do you know about it? Do you know about his affection? Do you know about his mercy in your life? Do you know about the consolation that's in Christ? Do you know the the comfort of love? Have you had fellowship of the Spirit? All of these assume yes. Because again, if it was like, well, some get this, some don't. Some have this experience some Christians don't, then he wouldn't have used this one to say, well, now you got to make sure you love one another. Because some people say, well, I didn't actually ever experience any consolation of the Spirit, so therefore I don't have to love like that. No, no, no. All of us have. So I want you just to ponder for a moment. How have you experienced that? Salvation is one thing, but how have you as a child of the Lord experienced consolation, comfort in Christ, or comfort of love? Any fellowship with the Spirit, any affection, mercy from God. How is it that He has shown up in your life? Because, you know, He's still walking through the streets of Nain, if you will. He's walking through your street, and He's showing compassion, and He's showing mercy. You know, maybe even tonight, as we sang of the goodness of the Lord, and the faithfulness of the Lord, and the work of the Lord, maybe you were just struck again by, oh, Lord, who am I that you would die for me? Oh, the mercy of the Lord struck you afresh. Or maybe as you were, came in, maybe kind of just you know, all knotted up over things that are going on, and the Lord's just like, just cast your eyes. Just set that thing aside for right now. Just put your eyes on me and worship me. And you just began to feel that thing have less control and less power and less influence over your life. Well, then you're experiencing the comfort of love. You know, sometimes the Lord wants, us to, wants to comfort us in his love. We're like, I'm not having it. I'm not having your love and your comfort right now. You can, like, change everything, and I know you can. You're a sovereign God. You can change everything, but don't give me any comfort of love in my circumstances because I just want my circumstances changed. So if you're willing, willing to change them, you can work in my life, Lord. But if you just want to kind of wrap your arms around me tonight and say I'm going to see you through, I'm not having it. Well, then you still know of the comfort of love. It's just that you're rejecting it. So all of these things are ours that the widow of Nain experienced. The Lord, I believe, is still having compassion, splachnizomai, over you and over me and over us. And so we should be looking for that in our life. Now, going back to the next point, not only do we experience this compassion, we also get to experience the resurrection and 1 Corinthians 15, verses 50 through 57, speak about this victory over death. Now, listen, the, this is an amazing story. This is an amazing scene. The guy is already in the coffin. They're on the way to put him into the ground or into the, you know, to a cave. They're, they're getting, it's all over. And yet, it's not all over. 
And does God do this kind of work today? Does he still raise the dead? Well, I have never seen it. But people in our church have. People have been a part of this, gone on a missions trip. The very first trip where um, we had anybody from this church go, it was a medical team that went to Nepal. And um, some of you know Ave Keneally. She was on that team, and there were some others that were from, from here. And they were there, and they were doing work. And a, mom, a mother, um, a Nepalese uh, mom, came with their little infant, and um, she was crying and just, please help. Thing. They rushed the child right into the tent where there were um, doctors from Germany, the United States, and, and nurses. And they, of course, had limited you know, equipment and so forth. But they, um, as I remember the story, they, they worked with this little baby for 30 minutes. And all of these medical professionals, doctors from the States, nurses from the States, doctor from Germany, they all said, the baby's gone. And they handed the baby back to the mom and said, we're so sorry. There's nothing we can do. She's gone. I don't remember if it was a boy or a girl, but your child is gone. And so she walks away and sits down and begins to just weep. And along comes a Gospel for Asia missionary and came upon the scene and sees this mother sitting there with her, her deceased little infant and said, they couldn't do anything. He prays for that baby, and it comes back to life right there. They run back up to the tent, and they all witness it. And they say, so, so God still does these things today. He still does them. Um, so, yes, but all of us are going to touch and taste of a resurrection. So 1 Corinthians 15, verse 50. Now this I say, brethren, that, all, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does corruption inherit incorruption. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall be changed. For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be, pro- be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. If you have faith in the Lord, then you have the promise that you will experience a resurrection. And this body which is decaying and dying, and should the Lord tarry long enough, all of us will experience that death in this lifetime. We have the hope that one day we will have a resurrected body. Now, what happens if I die right now? Well, to be absent from the body is to be present with Christ. You're still immediately in the presence of the Lord, but this resurrection is something that will happen at the time of the rapture. And, and I don't know, you know, if you like to write songs, maybe you should write a song, you know. You know, death is swallowed up in victory. It'd be a great one to teach everybody right when the resurrection happens. I've got a song to teach everybody, you know. We can sing this song about it. But we are going to be more amazed and we're going to be more excited than even this funeral procession that turned into a resurrection party. Because this is, the guy died again. <laughs> he had to die again. It wasn't forever. This resurrection is forever. We will be raised 
to never die again. We will be raised to never get sick again. We will be raised to never have another ache or pain again. This is what Jesus has provided for us. He died on the cross. And he defeated the power of sin. And he also defeated what sin produces, which is what? Death. And so when he rose from the dead, we, he is the first fruits of that resurrection. But we also will enter into that resurrection. So it is amazing and wonderful what happened in um, this scene at a particular point in time. But don't think you have no part in it. You do have a part in it because Jesus is still having compassion. And one day, in faith, we all are going to experience the resurrection. And what a day that's going to be, to be resurrected unto eternal life. As we move into verses 18 through 35, this really becomes a, uh, a portion of this passage that helps to understand what's going on um, before. And so the question is going to come out from the weary prophet, are you the one? And the Lord is going to say, tell them what you've seen. Well, what have you seen? Well, we're raising people from the dead. And we are you know, seeing sick people of a Gentile soldier, uh, servant, is being healed who is almost ready to die. Tell, see what's going on? So let, let's read these verses together about the weary prophet that, that um, uh, was encouraged by Jesus. And we'll begin with the first part of this section, 18 through 23. And it says, Then the disciples of John reported to him concerning all these things. All the things we just read about, okay? And John, calling two of his disciples to him, sent them to Jesus, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? When the men had come to him, they said, John the Baptist has sent us to you, saying, Are you the coming one, or do we look for another? And that very hour he cured many infirmities, afflictions, and evil spirits, and to many blind he gave sight. Jesus answered and said to them, Go and tell John the things you have seen and heard, that the blind see, the lame walk, the lepers are cleansed, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, the poor have the gospel, the good news preached to them, and blessed is he who is not offended because of me. So we got a weary prophet in prison. And, you know, he is the one that proclaimed, you know, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. There's one that's coming after me that's mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to loose. And he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John knew. John was a cousin to Jesus. Don't you think the family told the story? About Mary? Don't you think they told the story about his own conception? I mean, this was something he would have grown up with. He knew, but although he is a great prophet, he is just a man. And he's in prison. And I guarantee you, that's not how he scripted it. In his mind, he didn't write it out. Well, I am the forerunner, so I'm going to go and I'm going to preach and I'm going to really look to turn things around. I'm, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to just, it doesn't matter who shows up, I'm going to preach a message of repentance. If it's a poor person or if it's a, a, a rabbi or if it's a high priest, I don't care. I'm going to preach without compromise because the Messiah is coming. Oh, and then I'll probably get arrested and I'll be in jail and then I'll be beheaded and 
He's going to die on the cross, and three days later, he'll rise from the dead, and he's going to ascend to heaven, but the kingdom's not going to be established. I promise you that's not how he was thinking it was going to go. Nobody thought that was how it was going to go. Because there's nothing in the Old Testament that would give you some clear indication of first and second coming. It's just coming. It's only with the lens and the words of Jesus in the New Testament that we can say first and second coming. And it's very easy for us. We read in the Old Testament, these are the things Jesus did in his first coming. Oh, that's his first coming. But he's coming again. We know he is. And then the things that are not fulfilled, he'll do at the second coming. So easy for us. Not so easy for them. And there's a lot that we could talk about, but Jesus also you know, sent the disciples out and told them to preach the kingdom. They rejected him, and so then it was going in a different direction now. But, but John didn't know, and so he's sitting in prison thinking, I, I just didn't, I mean, ask him if he's the guy. Yeah, well, you know, and, and because he comes and they get, they, he gets the report of all the things that were going on, certainly would have, would have encouraged him. I don't know. Maybe this is a really, really, really polite way to say, I'm in jail. <laughs> you ever wanted to ask something, but you really don't want to ask it, and so you look for a way to drop the clue that you need something? Does anybody ever do that? Yeah? A few of you? Yeah? Some of the rest of you are just really blunt and have no problem with that. I wish I could be more like you. But, you know, you know maybe, maybe, I don't know, maybe he's what it, this is what he's doing. He's just like, oh, yeah, you know, I'm in jail. I mean, just tell him, remind him, ask him a question. And ask him if he's a one or if we should look for another. So he doesn't expect Isaiah 53 to be Jesus' experience. He doesn't expect, expect Psalm 22 to be what Jesus is going to go through. John expected, like all the rest of God-fearing people that were full of faith at a time when they were occupied by Rome, that when the Messiah come, he would throw off the shackles of Rome and he would um, you know, set up a kingdom. There's good biblical reasons for believing that. But that's not what's happening. Two comings are happening now. And Jesus does for John... What he does for us when we begin to doubt and wonder and inquire of the ways of the Lord. And maybe we shouldn't even throw it up to the level of doubt and wonder. Just That's why I called it weary. Maybe it's not a full doubt. It's not a full, it's just like, ah, I don't get what you're doing right now. But you know, Jesus does for us exactly what he does for John. He points him back to the scriptures. When he says, go and tell him about these, these things that are happening... That the blind are seen, that the gospel is being preached to the poor. What is he doing? He's reminding him of what the prophet said. Isaiah 29, verses 8 and 19. Um, and I'll just read one line. It says, And the eyes of the blind shall see. Isaiah 32, verses 3 through 6. The eyes of those who um, see will not be dim, and the ears of those who hear will listen. Also, the heart of the rash will understand knowledge, and the tongue of the stammerers will be ready to speak plainly. The eyes of the blind shall be opened, and the ears of the deaf shall be unstopped. Then the lame shall leap like, leap like a deer, and the tongue of the dumb sing. For water shall burst forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Or in Isaiah 61, the passage that he quoted there in Nazareth to proclaim um, uh, the acceptable year of the Lord. He's preaching the gospel. He says, tell them the things I'm doing. Because the things I'm doing is exactly what Scripture said 
the coming one would do. The coming one is here, and he's doing it. So essentially what he was saying is, I'm your guy, John. I'm the guy. I'm the one you've been waiting for. Don't worry about it. But what does he do? He points them back to Scripture. He points them to Scripture. He takes them back to the Old Testament. As we talked on Sunday, genealogy is very, very important for identifying who the Messiah would be. But so are the works that were prophesied that he would do. And so we see this. So we're not so different from John at times, are we? We begin to get anxious for Jesus to come and establish his kingdom and to rapture the church and judge the rebellion and the chaos. And some wonder at the delay. It's like, are you, are you really coming back? Well, we really believe it, but it's, just, it's a way of just like, we're ready for you to come now. This is what we're looking for. But the Lord had a perfect time picked out. And it's in his first coming, he came at that perfect time. And at his second coming, he will come at a perfect time. But you know what? What's going on right now in the world today? It's exactly what Jesus said would go on. What did he say would happen? He said there would be wars and rumors of wars. He said that there would be earthquakes. He said that there would be perplexities of nations. He said that there would be pandemics. All these things, pestilence, these are the things he said, I'm going away, but while I'm gone, these are the things that are going to happen. He nailed it. This is our world. And so we can have confidence from the scripture that his plan is still underway. And of course, we can even look to some other things. I, the, the one most significant fulfillment of prophecy in, uh, you know, in recent times is the nation of Israel becoming a nation again. Why? Because Jesus said that he would, that the, he exhorted in Matthew 24, that the nation of Israel, um, that they should hope that the abomination of desolation does not happen on the Sabbath, and that those who are in Judea should flee to the wilderness. Well, he's speaking to the Jews. He talks about their temple, and up until 1948, there really was, there was not that state of Israel. Now there is. So there, there are things. I mean, you, all the other things he said are going to happen, but then there's that one last day's prophecy that we can look at. Read Ezekiel and how the Lord said that Israel would return from the sword. I mean, the Lord is on time. Don't worry about it. He's going to come back when it's right. Jesus is faithful and trustworthy, and we need to be about our Father's business. We have, a, we, have a, we have marching orders that have not changed in the last two weeks. The elections, however they turn out, you think they turn out good, you think they turned out bad. It doesn't matter. Because we, as the church, have a higher priority. Now, we'll pray and hope. Yes, all that's fine. I hope you voted. I hope you, you did that. But when it's all said and done, what really changes for the church? Oh, we might have persecution now. Well, okay, but Jesus said, you know, if they persecute you, jump up and leap for joy. That's what it says. Go back into chapter uh, uh, 6 and read that. Jesus, get excited. Get to be like me for a little while. So the Lord's, it's okay. The Lord is on this throne. So let's keep on reading. Let's wrap it up here. Verses 24 to 35 where Jesus commends the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, why is he going to say the things that he's going to say? Well, they're true, for one. 
He's going to show the fickleness of, of the crowd. But also, he doesn't want anybody to think that he is diminishing the significance of John. Go tell John this stuff. Oh, oh wait, I forgot one verse. Um, I forgot the verse where he says, Blessed are those who are not offended. Um, verse 23. He says, Blessed are those who are not offended uh, at Jesus. And, and it's interesting. The word here that, of, of be offended, um, it's, it comes from the, the, the hunting practice of trapping birds. And it refers to the action that depresses the bait stick so that it triggers the trap. And he says, don't be triggered by me. Blessed are those that don't get triggered by me. Does Jesus trigger people? Oh, my goodness. He triggered people so bad that they killed him. You know what? People are still getting triggered by Jesus to this day. You want to just, just try preaching the gospel here or there. Just, just, just try repeating what Jesus said to repent of. Try repeating of the fact that we must follow the Lord or we don't get to be a part of the kingdom. Try, try calling people to the word of the Lord that says they must deny themselves. Oh, that'll trigger them. But Jesus said, blessed are you if you don't get upset because of me. And it is a blessing when we're not upset because of the Lord, isn't it? When we're not upset because of him, then we get to enter into the fullness of the life that he has. And um, I mean, listen, I, I have, I'm, I've been blessed to grow up in a godly family and to have the word in front of me my entire life. I'm not, I'm, I hope, is any, I'm not offended at Jesus. Are you offended at Jesus? I'm not. I love what he has to say. I, even when it's hard, even when the rebuke comes, thank you, Jesus. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. I'll take it, Lord. Your rebuke, I will, I will label it as kindness and mercy to my life. So if the Lord calls you to humble yourself, don't be offended. If the Lord tells you to be a, even a bigger servant in your marriage, don't be offended. If the Lord tells you to forgive and quit having a pity party, don't be offended. Forgive them. Do you get offended by the Lord? I hope not. Jesus, bless her if you don't get offended. I hope I, hope I don't trigger you. Jesus is saying, because, man, you're going to be blessed if you don't. You're going to walk into the fullness that I have for you. Now, verses 24 to 35, Jesus commends the ministry of John the Baptist. When the messengers of John had departed, he began to speak to the multitudes concerning John. What did you go out in the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? Some flimsy little guy out there who just would go with? No, he wasn't that, was he? But what did you go out to see? A man clothed in soft garments? That was not his style, was it? He had camel's hair. I mean, it, you know, skins on and a leather belt. I mean, this is, this is what he wore. I mean, you can imagine the crowd's probably chuckling as, right, this is being, what'd you go to see? Somebody that just was like afraid of people and just whatever they needed to be said. And it's like, oh, no. He said, brood of vipers. Remember Jesus? Well, what about his clothing? Indeed, those who are gorgeously apparelled and live in luxury are in king's courts. But what did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I say to you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. 
For I say to you, among those born of women, there is not a greater prophet than John the Baptist. Wow. Number one prophet. Why? He had the most significant ministry. He got to prepare the hearts of people for Jesus to walk physically into their towns. And so there's nobody who was greater than John the Baptist. Probably also when, when his disciples tried to provoke him, tried to trigger him, right? Cause an offense in him. Hey, Jesus is baptizing too. And he's called Jesus the Messiah. You're called John the Baptist. He's like cutting into your time out there. And everybody's going out there to be baptized by him. He's like, what does John say? Well, he can't have anything if God didn't give it to him anyway. Nevertheless, I must what? Decrease and he must increase. So he had a, a great ministry, but he also was a man who knew how to give Jesus first place. And so he says, there's nobody greater. But then he goes on to say this, but he who is least in the kingdom of God is greater than he. Those who get to, see, so John didn't get to watch the kingdom be inaugurated. He died before Jesus went to the cross and rose from the dead, and the new covenant was established. But those who get to enter into the new covenant and, and experience that, oh, he even has a better place than, than John. That would be us. That would be us. Well, not me. I'm really, I'm not much in the kingdom. Well, that's why he said, what? He's who's what in the kingdom? Least in the kingdom. Understand the place and the position and the glory that you are connected with. Jesus said, yeah, he's a great guy. He's a, the prophets, you got Elijah, you got Moses, you got, you know, um, Jeremiah, Isaiah, Ezekiel, Amos. These prophets, amazing men. John's number one because of what he did. But if you're in the kingdom and you're even at the bottom of the barrel, you still have a greater place than his because of what you get to experience. The finger of God riding upon your heart to walk in your ways, the spirit of the Lord dwelling within you, your name written in the Lamb's book of life. Wow. This is amazing stuff. And so, you know, we're running out of time here, but I would just say, have you made a big deal about your salvation lately? Have you made a big deal about what you're connected with? If, what would impress you if you got a phone call from somebody, anybody? What would be a phone I mean, it doesn't have to be spiritual, but if somebody called you and you would be certain to let everybody know you got that phone call. I mean, I, I, certainly nothing like this, but just, I mean, if, if the coach for the Miami Dolphins called up and said, hey, Troy, I just want to talk to you about some of the plays this week. And, you know, did you watch the game? Yeah, I watched the game. You know, so what did you think about it? Well, you know, and then I gave my pick. I will let everybody know. I will let everybody know about that. That'd be, to me, that'd be a pretty amazing phone call. It doesn't do anything for me spiritually. and wouldn't do anything for you spiritually. It'd just be fun. But, but we're connected with the king of a kingdom. And he said, even if you're the last one in the kingdom, you still have a better experience and position. Make a big deal about your salvation, right? Verse 29, and when all the people heard him, even the tax collectors justified God. In other words, they, they agreed you know, with the Lord. Having been baptized with the baptism of John, they acknowledged what God was doing. 
But the Pharisees and the lawyers rejected the will of God for themselves, having not been baptized by him. Was it the will of God that everybody should have gone down to the Jordan, that could have got to the Jordan and been baptized? Evidently so. They should have been repenting, and they didn't do that. So, uh, yeah, the Lord is wanting to make certain that he hasn't put John in this terrible negative light. And we read verse 31, And the Lord said, um, verse five, to verse 35, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation? And what are they like? They're like children. Now, I don't think any man probably appreciated that in the group right there. So let me tell you what the men are like in this generation. Bunch of babies. <laughs> They're like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to one another saying, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking. He, came, he was the one that came weeping. And what did they make of him? Demon-possessed. But the Son of Man, Jesus, has come eating and drinking, and you say, look, a glutton and a drunkard or a wine-bibber, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is justified by all her children. I am so glad that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Because that's who we are. Let's not forget it. He's still friends with sinners. When you look at the world out there, and you see them acting like sinners, remember, Jesus is a friend of them. Don't be disgusted by them. Now listen, there's sin. Yeah, call them to repentance. So you have these two scenes that open here in the chapter where Jesus is healing uh, the centurion's servant. And then you have the scene where he raises this, this dead son of a widow and um, then they come and say, are you the one? And he's like, well, this, you know, this is what I've been doing. And he did more of it. Go tell him again that these are the things that are doing. So this is probably why these verses are placed right here. And then I can't wait to get till next week's uh, uh, end of the chapter where we see a woman, a sinner. You know, he's a friend of sinners. We're going to see a, a, a well-known sinner uh, come in and experience the grace and the compassion of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, we are so grateful that you have compassion on us when we, when we ache, when we hurt. You want to comfort us with your love. But we thank you for the assurance of a resurrection, a defeat over death in the next life. And Lord, we don't want to look for another. You are the one. You are the one that has come, not the coming one. You're the one that has come. And Lord, we're so glad to not be offended by you. We celebrate who you are, what you do, what you don't do, what you teach, and what you don't teach. Lord, all of your ways are beautiful, and we celebrate them. But sometimes we're like John, and we don't always understand them. And so, Lord, would you just meet us afresh? Would you... Just point us back to the scriptures of your ways and what you're doing, your faithfulness to us.